This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this installment of our continuing series on health innovation, Fortress and Frontier, Dr. Robert Grayboys, Senior Research Fellow and Healthcare Scholar here at Mercatus, talks to Dr. Devi Prasad Shetty, who is Chairman and Founder of Narayana Health Limited. With 31 hospitals in India and one in the Caribbean, Narayana is one of the most innovative hospital systems in the world and a pioneer in high-tech approaches to quality control and cost efficiency. Dr. Shetty also was the subject of a recent episode of the Netflix series, The Surgeon's Cut. In their wide-ranging conversation, Dr. Grayboys and Dr. Shetty discussed Narayana's efforts to reduce the incidence of bed sores, how the United States can make healthcare more affordable for all Americans, India's critical shortage of healthcare personnel, how to improve medical education, and much more. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. Welcome to all of our listeners, and a special welcome to our guest, Dr. Debbie Shetty, who is among the most innovative and acclaimed physicians in the world. It's wonderful to have you with us today, Dr. Shetty. Thank you. For our listeners, the crucial facts about our guest are these. Narayana's 31 hospitals in India and one in the Caribbean are famed for low cost and high quality. The system is also a pioneer in high-tech approaches to quality control and cost efficiency. At the same time, Narayana has experienced some striking successes by way of very low-tech approaches. In the United States, a heart bypass operation generally costs at least $100,000. At Narayana's hospitals in India, the cost is around $2,000, 2% of the amount that Americans spend on the same surgery. Yet, in terms of outcomes, Narayana's performance is on par with the finest American hospitals. In 2014, Narayana wished to offer their services to Americans and others in the Western Hemisphere, so Narayana teamed up with Ascension, America's largest Catholic hospital system, to build a hospital where Americans could receive treatment. Together, they built this hospital, but they built it not in America, but rather in the British-owned Cayman Islands, an hour or so south of Miami. At the time, Dr. Shetty explained, quote, The best place on the planet for a hospital to be built is on a ship parked outside U.S. waters. The United States charges maximum rates for procedures. U.S. regulations make it very difficult for hospitals to innovate and control cost, unquote. So for seven years, I've spoken frequently about what I call the Narayana riddles. How does Narayana perform such excellent work at such low cost? And why is it that we cannot replicate in this country what Narayana does in India or in the Caymans? Today, Dr. Shetty and I will explore these and other riddles, and we'll discuss the role that Mother Teresa, now St. Teresa of Calcutta, played in the founding of Narayana. And now I'll ask some questions, and we'll hear our guest's answers. Again, Dr. Shetty, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The first story I ever heard about Narayana was about a highly successful effort to reduce the incidence of pressure wounds, of bed sores among patients. Uh, Could you tell us first what bed sores are, why they're so terrible, and how you worked to reduce the number of cases? Across the world about 7% to 40% of the heart patients after a major heart operation develop some degree of bed sore. It may be just a skin skin peeling, peeling at the back or at the heel, 
or it may be a full thickness tissue loss at the pressure point. This is accepted by the global standards of 7% to 40%. That's okay if a hospital is doing 200 heart operations a year. We do close to 700 heart surgeries a month. And if you say 10% of your patients develop bed sore after the heart operation, we will be producing about 70 people with the bed sore every month and we need a separate hospital to take care of the bed sore. So we told our nurses that something has to be done and it has to be done fairly quickly. And as usual, we didn't say that we have no money, but we strongly believe that anything you want to do in life, if you have too much of money in the bank, your brain stops working. So we tell our employees, all my colleagues, that we want to change the world, but we have no money. So as usual, they started thinking and the nurses came up with very innovative uh, way of preventing bed sore. And we have virtually eliminated, I'm not saying we have eliminated completely, we have virtually eliminated bed sore to a quite a, quite a large extent. Yeah, Once in a while we do get it, but it's very rare. And it's important to know that uh, they can have very serious health ramifications as well. My mother nearly died of a, of a pressure wound uh, when she was 92 and barely saved her life. I understand that a key factor in this fight against bed sores was your corporate culture, that at Narayana, the humblest nurse or technician is free to offer observations, opinions, and criticism even to the highest surgeons such as yourself, and that you, at the top of the organization chart, will listen to the humblest of employees and their suggestions. Tell us about this part of your culture. See, we are in a service industry. Every person working in the hospital potentially interacts with our customers. Everyone is customer-facing in healthcare industry. Unlike an automobile industry or a software industry, where employees really do not interact with the clients other than the marketing people. Here, everyone working here is involved in interacting with the customers as well as we have a very important mission that is saving lives. You must understand that this industry is dramatically different than any other industry. You take the example of any industry in the world. When there is an agreement or an understanding between the client and the service provider, discussion is about the money or the legality or all those things involved in the regular contract. But discussion is never about the death. In our business, whenever we interact with our customers, that is patients, in the end, everything is revolving around death. Because we make mistakes, somebody is going to die. So it's a very, very serious business. So in this industry, unless everyone is passionately involved in your mission, you cannot give that kind of results. When I do the heart operation, I may be the most accomplished heart surgeon in the world. All it requires is perfusionist who is running the heart and machine to be not attentive only for two minutes. Then you have someone who is brain dead. That's it. So every person in the organization is very, very, very important. 
but we clearly articulate to our, all our colleagues that all our employees, our salary is paid by the patients. Salary is never paid by the management. The, our salary is paid by the patients. So they are our customers. I would strongly urge listeners to watch the Netflix program on Dr. Shetty. It's a beautifully made film, and the story it tells is compelling. In that program, Doctor, you talked extensively about your relationship with Mother Teresa and the role she played in Narayana's mission. Could you please share a little bit of that history? I was working in Calcutta as a young heart surgeon about nearly 30 years ago. In the middle of the operation, telephone started ringing. At that time, we didn't have a mobile phone. The landline in the operating room started ringing and my anesthetist took the call and he talked to the caller and he turned around and he said, uh, somebody wants you to make a home visit. I told my anesthetist, I'm a surgeon, I don't make home visit. Then the caller said, if you make a visit to see this patient, it may perhaps change your life. And uh, I said, that's a very interesting offer. I don't mind. So that's exactly what I did. And as I was reaching the home, the address, I realized it was Mother Teresa's address. And she was not well. And I had the privilege of being involved with her care the last seven or eight, ten years of her life. And that was perhaps the best part of my life. She dramatically changed my perception about what life is, what our duties and responsibilities are, what is caring, what is compassion. And she really epitomizes the power of love, unconditional love. Many, many things happen in my life. Uh, I can go on and on how she influenced every aspect of my way of thinking. You know, conversation you and I had last week, you told me about a remarkable innovation that you implemented, and it sounds very much to me like something that would have come from, you know, been inspired by Mother Teresa, and that is critical care assistance. Could you please describe this job, how it came about, and whom it is that you hire for these positions? One of the, uh, the problem we have running hospitals doing high-end procedures is the, uh, the nurses who assist us for the operation. We do complex heart operations on children, on adults, and all types of procedures. And these operations are very long procedures. It takes sometimes take eight hours, ten hours each operation. And you cannot keep on telling your nurses what exactly you're looking for, what exactly you want. You want people around you to understand what you want and just help you without you even talking about it. So we had very well-trained nurses. But the problem with the nurses is that they have very, very career ambitions, especially nurses in India. Majority of them are dreaming of getting a job either in Middle East or in England or the US. And they all want better living conditions, better remuneration. So we actually became a training ground for nurses for Middle East or England or US because our hospital is accredited by Joint Commission of US. So we follow the norms like an American hospital. So if a nurse worked in our hospital for two or three years, she will get very attractive pay package outside India. So we were actually churning out large and larger number of these nurses. 
then we realize it can't go on because we can't keep on teaching these girls. So we started identifying girls from villages who couldn't join the nursing college because they couldn't afford it. But they have a great ambition to be nurses. So we brought them under a program called Critical Care Assistant, CCA. And the training program is exactly like nurses, but they are trained only to assist for a heart operation. Nothing else. They don't, they're not trained to operate, assist for appendicectomy or a brain operation. These nurses are trained for three years to assist for a heart operation. So initially they learn about the sterility, human biology and the human anatomy and these things. And like any other nurse, then we train them. At the end of three years, when these girls finish their training, now they, we have hundreds of them working and they are so smart in learning the trade. Today, when I am operating, if I put my hand and tell the nurse that says, give me six O-proline, that is a stitch we use for stitching. She knows that the step of the procedure I am in, I need seven O-proline, not six O-proline. She will hand me over seven O-proline, but she won't say anything. She gives me what I need rather than what I ask for. That is a level of knowledge, skill, presence of mind, passion they have. But they may not have a degree as a nurse. So the, essentially, we believe in a country like India, where there are not many opportunities for women from lower socioeconomic strata to climb up the ladder. If they are brought into the healthcare system and given structured training program to do one particular type of job and pay them like a regular nurse, do not treat them like a cheap labor. They are paid exactly, paid exactly like a nurse, but the, our idea of training them is the continuity. So these girls coming from a very poor family, once they start working in a organized institution like hospital, they learn how the society runs. They get educated and they become assertive. And these women, when they get married and when they have their own children, they teach them the art of making choices. So our whole idea is that if we can use the healthcare industry as a means for transforming society, other than making the world a healthy place, we can change the world. It's an inspiring story. You impressed upon me the last time we talked that uh, that some of these women come from deeply impoverished villages and their options in life would have been extraordinarily limited without this chance. So let's get to the Dariana Riddles. In the United States, the cost of a cardiac bypass graft is generally around $100,000, which is 50 times the cost of the same surgery with the same quality outcomes at Narayana. Now, whenever I tell Americans these statistics, their first impulse is to say, well, doctors in India don't earn as much as American doctors, and that's why it's so cheap. And, and of course, it's true that your doctors, the salary levels are considerably lower. But I don't think that can explain a 50-fold difference in the price. So could you explain 
Why does a bypass cost so much here in America and so little at Narayana, aside from that one difference of physician salaries? First thing is the economy of scale. About 14% of the heart surgery done in India is done by our group. So we naturally procure materials at a significantly less cost than the others. Then we use our infrastructure for at least 12 to 14 hours in a day, six days a week. We work for six days a week, unlike the uh, European hospitals or an American hospital, which works only for uh, five days a week. And we sweat our infrastructure, like we buy a CT scan or an MRI scan. We try to run it virtually 24 hours. Because you run it 24 hours or two hours, it only has a lifespan of five years to seven years. Then the new model comes and you have to keep on changing. So as we keep on using the infrastructure maximum number of times, as we do more operations, and we also have surgeons who are trained to do particular type of operation. All of us as heart surgeons, we started off doing everything. But gradually, we choose one or two areas, like my choice, uh, as, I, as you mentioned, in the uh, surgeon's cut in Netflix, the documentary uh, you talked about, it's about a surgery called pulmonary endarterectomy, which is a very complex operation done by very few surgeons across the world. And we have a very large experience in that. So I concentrate on pulmonary endarterectomy. And my colleagues, some of them concentrated on the aneurysm surgery, some of them concentrated on pediatric surgery. So people do only focused work. So by doing one particular operation or two types of operation, every day from morning till evening, our results get better. When the results get better, your cost goes down. And when the results get better, patients are happy, more patients will come. So essentially, it's a virtuous cycle of economy of scale, maximal utilization of the infrastructure. And also, uh, we, uh, we have mechanism to run low-cost health insurance schemes for the poor. So we do many, many things together to bring down the cost. It's not like you can't do one thing in an organization make, make a huge difference. You have to do thousands and thousands of little things to make a big change. And we'll talk about that insurance scheme a little bit later. Uh, so I'm an economist, and my profession was founded by Adam Smith in 1776. And in, in his great book, The Wealth of Nations, he wrote about the importance of economies of scale, of specialization. And you know, unfortunately, the news from that book in 1776 is only beginning to penetrate the medical <laughs> professions. So I'm, I'm glad it has reached yours, at least. Uh, I, I, I've taught at a number of medical centers, and I've had some students who were uh, nurses and doctors who had worked in hospitals in South Asia and Southeast Asia, and they, they talked about lean manufacturing methods. In particular, I remember one nurse from either Malaysia or Singapore had spoken of working in an operating room, and she said they had a bell in the in the OR, and at any point that anyone in the room thought that something was going awry, something was going wrong, they could ring that bell and, and bring the surgery to a stop. And you know, the technician who was standing there holding a tray of implements could tell the chief surgeon, 
I see a problem developing here. Now, I don't know if, if you have similar procedures, but I have some idea that, that perhaps you, you follow similar schemes. Fortunately, uh, the, the process what you talked about has now become part of a joint commission protocol before starting any heart operation. Everyone should stop everything. Then take a stock of the situation, starting from identifying the patient to the procedure and the site. And so this is the standard procedure now across all joint commission accredited hospitals. So essentially, the quality parameter and documentation has become the buzzword in healthcare industry to uh, prevent medical error. You'd be surprised to know that in United States of America, medical error is the third leading cause of death. And if 200 patients get, get admitted to an American hospital, spend just one night, one in 200 dies due to medical error. Not medical negligence. Getting admitted to an American hospital is 10 times riskier than skydiving. The error happens because protocol and processes are not followed. When people choose to treat the patient with their own style of treating without looking at the protocol, the problem happens. So our entire mission now is to have digital tools which will smoothen the process and everyone has to follow the protocol. When that happens, healthcare will become as safe as aviation industry. I often compare aviation and, uh, and surgery. It's an interesting. I've got a paper I'm working on on that right now. I may consult with you on it. Just to reiterate for people who are not familiar with your system, your success rates uh, are comparable to our best hospitals here, Mayo and Cleveland Clinic and those, I believe. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your the quality at your institutions? Today, we have technological tools to predict complication, predict cardiac arrest, and predict mortality. Like in my mobile phone, I have all the parameters of a patient in the ICU to an extent that I stopped going to the ICU in the last one year. I have hardly gone to the ICU. And I uh, go to bed at half past 11 at night and I finish the ICU rounds in my house. And I am up at 4.30 in the morning and I again do the ICU rounds. So essentially, all these technological tools have put us in a phenomenal position to predict complications and prevent the uh, problems. So the one is the focus factory approach of doing large number of operations in one building uh, rather than different, different types of specialties working together like a typical general hospital has definitely helped us to uh, benchmark ourselves with the best in the world. And also, you see, the, the, the whole uh, philosophy of how a hospital is built and managed in developing countries is dramatically changing. I, I'll give an example. The, uh, in US, if a hospital is doing about 200 heart operations a year, it is recognized as a training institution. The, in India, 
the number of surgeries are so high that in in US a surgeon when an average heart surgeon when he retires in his entire life he would have done not more than 2000 3000 heart surgeries in his whole life as a heart surgeon and we have surgeons who have done more than 3000 surgeries and they are still in their uh, late 30s or early 40s so essentially because of the sheer volume our doctors have become very very good in skill and also in good old days we had no access to those high end machines like a ct scan mris and all these fancy gadgets but today these machines are made by companies on a large scale commercial basis so we have access to buy those gadgets so essentially healthcare is nothing but interaction between the man and the machine and if you have the same gadgets like the uh, first world countries and you have people sitting behind the machine with 10 times more experience than our counterparts in the western part of the world naturally the outcome will be very good and i want to get back to the uh, technology aspect but first i'd like to ask a question in 2014 you and america's ascension hospital system the largest catholic system in the us created health city cayman islands 90 minutes south of miami and its purpose as i understand it was you know in large part to serve american patients and i'd like to ask about that hospital tell us a little bit about the hospital and also why you and your american partners decided to build it in the caymans rather than to build it in say florida <laughs> yes the uh, why we decided to build outside the uh, united states is obvious i may, may not have to state the uh, cayman island is a, a fantastic place for a project like this mainly because it's a first world country infrastructure very safe and wonderful environment a very stable government it's a british protectorate very friendly people and they provided gave us everything to build a hospital our idea is to build a different model of hospital which learns a lot from the western healthcare system and also we have our own knowledge from running hospitals in a country like india and merge the two entities and give a better experience to the patients at a affordable price that's a whole philosophy and cayman island was government was very forthcoming and the ascension group uh, we learned so much from them and they are one of the most progressive healthcare groups in united states and they have been extremely nice to us in giving us the freedom to build our dream project in uh, cayman island and we learned a lot and our our desire now is to reproduce the same model in caribbean region which desperately requires a different model of delivering healthcare and uh, uh, try to produce a model which others can uh, replicate that's the whole purpose yeah i've met some of the ascension people and i can say that they learned as much from you as you learned from them so it was a good partnership we learned a lot from them indeed yeah so a lot of people are very critical of the american healthcare system i'm very high on it the there's an awful lot to praise about America's healthcare system. We do some wonderful things. We have some wonderful institutions. 
But perhaps the single most embarrassing fact is that our hospitals and our medical offices are still heavily dependent upon handwritten notes and fax machines. Now, you mentioned that Narayana is investing heavily in a digital revolution in healthcare. Your Athma system is aimed at creating a truly paperless hospital, something that we talk about here, but we never get there. Could you please tell us about Athma and about your vision for virtual healthcare and its role in serving the people of India? We believe that if we can take away the pen and paper from the hands of doctors, nurses, and medical technicians, we can bring down the mortality and morbidity in the hospital to quite a large extent. Significantly, we can reduce the mortality morbidity in the hospital. But unfortunately, the tools available to make it happen are totally disjointed. One aspect of electronic medical record doesn't communicate with the lab system. Lab system doesn't communicate with the uh, EMR. So they're all disjointed. And there are very major powerful players who are already established, who are doing a wonderful job. But unfortunately, most of the electronic medical records, what is currently established, have converted the paper into a digital format. But they have not given the intelligence what software can give to those electronic medical records. So our intention is that fundamentally all the electronic medical records should be built for the mobile phone, not for the desktop. Now, why mobile phone? Because doctors look at the desktop five to six times in a day, but they look at their mobile phone 200 times in a day. If you want their attention on their patient, all the application you have built should be built on a mobile phone. That's the first criteria. The second criteria is any digital tool you build for the doctors should not have a keyboard because God did not create the doctors to type. They simply cannot type. So we have designed the entire electronic medical records just with the touch screen. And third thing is any digital tool you develop for the doctors should not have a instruction manual because doctors hate instruction manual. Doctors hate someone telling them what to do. And it should be so intuitive that the doctor should embrace it. So if we can give fantastic experience on a mobile phone in buying stuff through Amazon or watching a movie in Netflix, why can't we have the same thing in healthcare? Why people do not see the doctors when they have the symptoms? Why they keep on postponing their clinic visit? Because the experience is horrible. It is like if somebody has a chest pain, he only wishes that it goes away. He doesn't have a wish to see the doctors. Why can't we have an option? The moment the patient gets chest pain at 2 o'clock at night or a headache, with just touch of a button, he will get through to the nurse from the emergency room. He talks to the nurse. 
and in 5 minutes he talks to the doctor doc and you have all your medical records in your own phone and doctor has a copy of your electronic medical record in his phone and they know they go through all the records and they talk to each other in a meaningful manner not talking to the patient at 2 o'clock at night about the family history and straight away they come to a conclusion within 2 minutes of discussion that okay this pain what you are getting in the chest is not cardiac don't worry i have seen your ecgs i have seen all the angio report in the past you cannot develop a heart attack go back to sleep or alternatively say that look you have to see go to the emergency room and get yourself admitted this can be done we have to give amazon experience to the patients i keep buying stuff in amazon the stuff i never use because of the joy of buying things so i want the same experience to be given to the patient and when we develop this digital tool we want this to be available to every hospital on the planet at whatever price they can afford to pay we can afford to do it because this is the beauty of converting atoms into bytes if i have got 1 kilo of rice i give you half a kilo of rice i lost my half a kilo of rice if i have developed the software to treat my patients with our money and my patients are happy our doctors are happy if another hospital wants the software i can technically give it to them free of cost without losing what i have and they will have what i have so this is the beauty of converting atoms into bytes so our mission is to ensure that these technologies are available to every hospital on the planet right now i'm writing a paper on virtual health with two very fine doctors one of them uh, dr lyle berkowitz gave a lecture that's on youtube about 10 years ago in which he said we doctors are the reason that electronic medical records are so terrible uh the software people came and said what do you want and the doctor said we want paper we want you to put paper onto the screen and he said it just simply does not transfer well and his conclusion was we don't have a shortage of physicians that we talk about we have a shortage of using physicians efficiently a virtual revolution is what we really need and and that's what we're writing about and i'll mention a story i often tell i've already alluded to it today my my mother when she was 92 was sitting on ipad 8 o'clock in the evening in her apartment talking to her grandson my nephew who's a physician and she said she felt good uh she said she had a little sore that was hurting her and she was going to call the doctor in 2 or 3 days and check into it because it wasn't getting better And my nephew started looking at her through the screen going closely and said would you mind showing me the wound and she swung her iPad around and showed him and he watched her breathing and looked at her skin and whatever and ultimately he concluded that she was in the early stages of a MRSA infection and sent her to the hospital immediately where she nearly died anyway they were able to save her life and she got a wonderful extra year a year and a half of life and and what i've always taken to that is just how miraculous the ability to use these screens are and also the fact that you should not have to have a doctor in your family to enjoy that sort of of life-saving treatment it should be available to anyone everyone yes 
Now, you made a, an astonishing claim last time that I hope will come true. You said you anticipated that India would become the first country in history to dissociate health from wealth, to separate these two. By itself, that's a profound observation and quite a noble ambition. But you added that you thought it could happen in, I believe, the next 10 years. And I wanted to find, did I hear it correctly? And if so, please tell us about that vision and how it will come about. Interestingly, healthcare is not limited by any finite components. Like tomorrow, if the Indian government decides to give a car free of cost to every citizen, it is not possible because making car requires finite components like steel and various metals and the oil and they're all finite. God doesn't create them anymore. Healthcare is delivered by people. People are infinite. When I go old, when I retire or when I die, somebody else is going to take over. And we produce 24 million babies a year. And we can potentially train the entire global requirement of doctors, nurses, medical technicians. We have the capability. And we also have the desire. And if we can produce large number of passionate doctors, if we can produce large number of uh, passionate nurses, medical technicians, we already have, we are virtually the pharmacy of the world. We make all the medicines. And now, uh, thanks to the government policies, we are rapidly emerging as the medical technology hub wherein as an organization, we have decided that all our cardiac monitors, ventilators, x-rays, everything has to be replaced with very, very advanced machines uh, made in India. And we have all the machines, all the medicines, and all the people. Naturally, we will be in a position to uh, make healthcare affordable to everyone at a price what they can afford. So it is just a matter of time, mainly because of the position the country's development is in. So our desire is to ensure, when I was a kid, I could hear all the policymakers saying that healthcare is expensive and it will always remain expensive. But one day India will become a rich country and everyone can afford healthcare. And we all believed them. But when I grew up, I looked at the richest countries in the world struggling to offer healthcare to the citizens. So then I realized that becoming rich and then offering healthcare to everyone is not going to work. So we have to dissociate healthcare from affluence. And this is the trend I'm watching in India, which has the clear policies to produce. We have, we already have over, over 500 medical colleges. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised in the next few years, we'll have about 1,000 medical colleges. And we will produce that many doctors, nurses, and we will be able to uh, dramatically change the way healthcare is delivered. And in fact, you, you told me two things that at first glance almost seem to conflict, but I, I know they don't. Uh, you said, first of all, that India 
your biggest problem is you have a, a critical shortage of the number of medical personnel that you need to, to do the sort of things that Narayana does. And that needs to be fixed. But also you mentioned, and you just alluded to it, that India could become the world's major supplier of medical personnel, that you could export doctors, nurses, others to fill the gaps all over the world. So tell me, how do you end up filling that gap in India first? And then what do you do to fill the gap for the rest of the world? The uh, World Bank predicted that in about 10 years' time, there will be a need for nearly 80.3 million health workforce across the world, both in developing and developed countries. Interestingly, I don't think any country has plans to build that technical manpower for the healthcare industry. And these process of training health workforce for healthcare takes a long time. It takes 14 years to train someone to operate on the hand. So when no country has the plan, our fear is that when they face the shortage, which they will as the increasing life expectancy, and also when families become wealthy, Medical profession doesn't become attractive for the children of the family. And when the country becomes wealthy, medical profession doesn't become very attractive for the young people with the passion to embrace. So this is a natural phenomenon. So we expect the developed countries to have a shortage in the next 7, 10 years time when the aging population virtually uh, skyrockets. So they need large number of medical specialists. When that happens, we are afraid they will open the doors for Indian doctors and nurses. And there is nothing we can do to prevent the uh, exodus of these medical professionals. So the only option we have is to produce them in abundance rather than preventing them from leaving the country. You cannot technically prevent people from seeking better fortune or a better life outside. So this is the whole purpose that we need to invest right now in producing very, very large number of health workforce. You remind me of a story from my teaching days. I was a professor of economics at a, a school, University of Richmond, that catered very heavily to very wealthy students. And we had a, a career day where people, graduates of the university, would come back and tell, talk about their careers. So I had a, a young man who came back. He was a medical resident at the local medical school. He had been the first person in his family ever to go to college. Initially, he didn't have the money for medical school, so he worked as a lab technician and in his late 20s said, I have enough money, I'm going to go to medical school now. And so he became this rather elderly med student. And the students asked questions. And it turns out he worked extremely long hours. His pay was nothing like these students were hoping to make when they graduated. But he said, this was my dream. This is what I wanted as a child, that this it's what I wanted to be. And he was an inspiring speaker. And then the next Monday morning, so I asked the students, so what did you learn from hearing from him? And one student raised his hand and said, don't go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was just 
the embodiment of exactly what you said. Had he been one of the wealthy students there, he wouldn't have considered it. because all. And he explained that his classmates uh, that he had gone as a college student with were earning 10 times what he earned and, and were living in a good life with mansions and fast cars, and he was still living in an apartment with roommates. Uh, yeah, I have a very interesting observation. You see, with the escalating cost of medical education in India and other parts of the world, children from poor families have stopped dreaming of becoming doctors. This will have serious, serious consequences in the future because outstanding doctors across the world with magic in their fingers generally come from deprived background because these are the kids with fire in the belly who are willing to work for 20 hours, 25, 24 hours a day and change the way healthcare is delivered. I'll give my experience as a young surgeon at the guy's hospital. One day, I was 12 o'clock at night. Patient was a bit unstable after the bypass grafting. I was sitting on a chair, dozing off, looking at the urine bottle where urine started trickling. And when the urine started trickling, because the patient wasn't passing urine three hours before that point of time when I arrived, because of the what we call as a low cardiac output, and I changed the medicines and did a lot of things. And when the urine started trickling, I was so happy and I said, oh, hooray. Then the nurse in charge, she looked at me, she said, you must be the only person in the world who's so happy looking at somebody else passing urine, right? So we need to be differently tuned to doing what we are doing. And in my experience, generally, I'm not saying there are exceptions, kids from very wealthy families have become outstanding doctors. Generally, my observation is that if you really identify the doctors with truly magic in their finger, most of them come from deprived background. And we need to encourage these kids to become doctors to change the way healthcare is delivered. That's fascinating. Uh, I've never heard that observation before, but it's, it's, it rings very true. Which brings us to medical education. Now, I've written in the past an argument that really the way American medical education is structured came from a 1910 report called the Flexner Report that set the standards for medical education. It all had to be very standardized. Every student had to arrive with precisely the same undergraduate background of chemistry and and whatever. And they had to follow the same list of courses. And it had its virtues. It was certainly a quality control element to it. But there's also an argument that it stifled innovation in medical education, that we couldn't get the specialization, the economies of scale. Everyone had to be a complete generalist, the exact opposite of what you you've done with your critical care assistance so that every everyone who wants to be a, someone who wants to be a psychiatrist needs to have studied every single aspect of medicine so and i suspect that given the role of the joint commission that uh, this has some application not only in the united states but feeds over into the rest of the world so do you see needs in changing the way we actually educate doctors and nurses medical education requires dramatic transformation 
to suit the current requirement. First thing is my observation about universities, how they function, especially medical and nursing and paramedical universities. My observation is when you, if you want to train someone to drive the bus safely, if you go to a university, ask them to create a curriculum to train the bus driver. They will make a curriculum with maybe 300, 500 pages explaining how the bus engine works, aerodynamic works, and every detail about how the bus works. But they never make a serious attempt to put him on the driver's seat and teach him how to drive the bus safely. Instead of sending him to a university, you send him to a driving school. They will not teach him about the aerodynamics or the engine or how to fix the bus. But they will put him on the driver's seat and teach him how to drive the bus safely. And that is what is required from the bus driver. The problem of our medical education is we are taught about things we virtually never encounter in our life. I'll give you one example. There is a syndrome called carcinide syndrome. And I read about it when I was in first MBBS, second MBBS, third year, fourth year, fifth year. Then I passed my, the, the end, appeared for the entrance exam and it was a standard question. Finished my MS and appear for FRCS many times. Every time they ask the question. But in my entire life as a heart surgeon, I would have seen not more than one or two carcinoid syndrome in my life. And the diagnosis was not made by me. And I'm not expected to make the diagnosis. So essentially, medical education should be like an apprenticeship. And a student should, the day, the first day of the medical school, they should be made to work as a nurse's assistant. And then gradually become the doctor's assistant. You cannot teach someone to swim in a library or a classroom. You want to learn swimming, you have to get into water. You learn about all the art of swimming in a library, you get into water, you drown. This is exactly how medical education, nursing education should happen. They have to be on the bedside. And that is the best place to learn medical education. Unfortunately, today, the curriculum and the syllabus and the way they are trained and the way they are uh, evaluated is all dependent on how many hours they have sat on a chair and started mugging about various things, what they need to. I'm not saying these things are not important. These are very, very important. But all this knowledge is available with click of a button in Google in your mobile phone. You don't need to spend endless hours trying to remember these things. So we need to relook at the medical education completely. And it has to be made attractive. People should love working and becoming doctors, not get uh, put off by looking at those thick books from which any question can be asked. And if they're not able to produce the sequence of the syndrome, they fail. So something has to be done. 
And another aspect of that is that it takes so many years of undergraduate education, medical school, the residency, the internships, etc., that by the time anyone is actually a serious practicing doctor, they're well into their 30s, which in many technological fields, the really creative years are in your early to mid-20s, and, and we're, I think, wasting, wasting the years of innovation by, by dragging things out too long. The other disturbing trend in medical education is the European regulation, which makes the young doctors work only 48 hours a week. When I was a young resident in Guy's Hospital, I used to work nearly 20 hours a day. And I could become a very experienced surgeon because I was working every day from morning till late evening. In the process, I learned all the tricks I needed to learn to be a good heart surgeon. Today, with 48 hours regulation, when a young person becomes an experienced surgeon, it's a time for him to retire. That long it takes. You have to respect the nature's law. When God makes someone young, they are expected to work long hours. When you grow old, you work less hours. You can't say that a person who is about to retire also works 48 hours a week and a young person trying to learn this skill also works only 48 hours a week. You are defying the God's, uh, the, 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 the nature's law. So in the process, these days, doctors who come out after training, they are taught substandard compared to in the past. Something has to be done. The doctor I mentioned earlier, who's the young resident who spoke to my class, he asked the students. Now, this was a university where their standardized tests were on par with Harvard or Yale, and the students were extremely hardworking and very competitive. And he asked them to estimate how much time do you spend a week on class and study and study groups and whatever. And they all wrote numbers, and we averaged it, and it came to... He said, now, you, you, you're very serious students. And they, yes, he said. He said, so the average here is 25 hours a week of studies. He said, I do 120 hours. And 120 is the legal limit for me in medical school. But I actually do more because they don't care if I'm reading journals on the side. He said, so in my field, I can't, even though you think you're working very hard, uh, you can't imagine what it is for a doctor. One more question, and we're running close on time. Let's return again to that mission that Mother Teresa gave you. Recently, I was talking with an American public official, and I mentioned Narayana, and I was describing it. And she was interested, but somewhat dismissive. She said, oh, well, high-level health care in India is only for wealthy people, so I don't really want to talk about it. Now, I know that's not the case with Narayana, but I'd like to hear some specifics from you. And in particular, could you discuss the Yeshisvini microhealth insurance programs? So I know Mother Teresa asked you to bring care to the poor of India. And tell us a bit about how you're doing it, and in particular, that insurance program. You see, the, when you're practicing as a heart surgeon in India or as a doctor in developing countries, the reality is dramatically different than what a, uh, what a doctor in other parts of the world thinks about it. I'll just give an example. Uh, 
technically speaking the job of a doctor in a developing country is putting the price tag on human life i'll explain how it works i see 50 to 100 patients every day and i do at least one or two heart operations the typical patient of mine is a little baby sitting on the mother's lap and i examine the kid and i look at the mother and say that i tell her that her child has a hole in the heart and he requires a heart operation and she has only one question she will not ask me about how how safe is the surgery and how many days the kid will be in the hospital or what is the length of the scar and the cosmetics about the scar she has only one question how much it is going to cost if i tell the mother that it is going to cost 1000 dollars which she doesn't have invariably that is a price tag on the kid's life if she comes up with 1000 dollars she can save the child if she doesn't have 1000 dollars she is going to lose the child this is what i do as a heart surgeon morning till evening putting price tag on human life this is what most of the doctors in all the developing countries do from morning till evening putting price tag on human life this is unacceptable how long you are going to let it happen so essentially we are in a situation wherein we can't just talk about what amazing things healthcare has offered to the citizens for us if a solution is not affordable it is not a solution it's pointless talking about all the fantastic outcome of cardiac surgery if 90% of the country's population cannot afford now how do you make them afford so this is why we come up with innovative schemes like yashaswini around 18 years ago there was drought in the state of karnataka where i am living currently and farmers lost their capacity to pay for the healthcare because our government spends about 1.1% of the gdp on healthcare uh so i talk to all my colleagues who are friends who are running hospitals in different parts of the state that look you guys have enough operating space in your operating room because not many patients are coming we will launch a health insurance with the government and we will get what it costs to do the operation you won't make any profit but it will keep the show going and they all agreed then we came with a proposal to the government that if every farmer in state of karnataka one day he doesn't smoke and that money which is 5 rupees about 11 cents he gives it to the government scheme as a health insurance premium and everyone contributes and government agrees to become a reinsurer and we had a very progressive government at that point of time they agreed and this scheme called yashaswini health insurance was born with a premium of 11 cents per month and about 1.7 million farmers enlisted in the first year eventually there are over 4 million farmers and the insurance covers only for the surgeries or any type there are about 650 varieties of commonly performed surgeries were covered including heart operation brain operation kidney operation and they could choose any hospital they don't need to uh, they didn't need to come to my hospital 
there are over 600 hospitals which were recognized they could go anywhere get the operation done and the insurance space and at the end of i think 12 14 years we ran the scheme about 1.3 million farmers had varieties of surgeries and 130,000 150,000 farmers had a heart operation just by paying 11 cents per month imagine a situation if we have close to 900 million mobile phone subscribers who spend about 300 to 400 rupees every month to speak on a mobile phone if they pay 30 rupees every month for the health insurance we can actually cover the surgical cost of the entire 900 million people it is possible poor people in isolation are very weak but together they are very strong today internet and the mobile communication has brought all of them together we have to bundle them together and offer a service and that will be a game changer those are some pretty amazing statistics so i think our time is just about up uh, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with the audience i just want to say that future is going to be fantastic i know we are all going through hell but all the pandemics come to an end it is a matter of time no pandemic has lasted forever so we have to take care of ourselves and be very positive and encourage your government to change the way healthcare is delivered use the modern tools and let's working together and let's make this world a better place to live thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you doctor it's been such a pleasure talking with you thank you for listening to the discourse magazine podcast You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again and see you next time.